today on CityCast Denver. A new play takes us back in time to the 1960s, when Denver Public Schools bus students across the city in an attempt to desegregate our education system. I sit down with the director and producer of the show, Alicia Smith-Young, to talk about her new production, Busing, which opens tonight in a church parking lot in Aurora. Today is Wednesday, September 8th, 2021. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. Hello, Alicia. Welcome to CityCast Denver. Hi. Thank you, Bree. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we're going to talk about your theater group, Idea Stage's first production. And it opens today and chronicles the intergenerational history of Denver's efforts to desegregate our public schools. Why did you want to focus on this topic? Well, I've, I've always like had an inkling for social and racial justice ever since I was a little girl. And so I'd always been interested in how integration, what happened then? You know, and I had heard about uh, Topeka, Kansas. I had heard about all of the other southern states, but I never heard what happened in Denver. And and I was always interested in like the black and brown folks of Colorado who had done historic things and had never been spoken about or we knew very little about. Yeah, and and this is such an interesting topic to me because I don't think it's necessarily a story that's known um, by Denverites. I'm a person who grew up here. Busing stopped in 1995 when I was a sophomore in high school. Um, so it, it happened while I was in school and I didn't really understand until I got older and read about the history, what it truly meant for us to, why, why kids were being bused. I mean, it was just part of our everyday was, you know, kids got bused across town to other schools outside of their neighborhoods. And as you're saying, this was an effort to integrate our communities. We interviewed a lot of folks and it was so compelling that we found out that many of the people who were bused had no idea why they were bused. Yeah. They did not know anything about Mrs. Rachel B. Knoll um, because we we did a um, a survey and we asked that question and there were so many of them who were just like, uh, I don't know. It was just the way it was. And then um, I recently did an interview with some folks who they may have graduated like in the 70s, like 76. And and they recalled like just the tension or their parents saying, well, we're doing it because it's the right thing to do. Um, And these were some white folks and some black folks. So it was just really interesting to me, like how we have failed to inform ourselves or how the education system here in Denver has failed to educate us about our own history. So, yeah, I think it's really representative of how we missed the mark mm-hmm. on on this, right? It's like, this was huge. No one knew about the bombing. They bombed the bus depot, the DPS school bus depot. And um, I think about a third of the buses were destroyed or damaged 
and no one knows about. And it was like 1970s. So it wasn't like in an era where there wasn't newspapers or radio or television. It was just like lost information. So I want to backtrack a little bit because you mentioned Rachel B. Knoll, and she was the first black woman elected to public office here in Colorado. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about who she was? Oh, Mrs. Rachel B. Knoll. Oh, this woman. I knew about Mrs. Knoll because I'm an educator in Aurora, and I knew about the school, and I knew she was like the first black woman um, elected to public office. And that was about it. I did not know like about the Knoll resolution, which was the uh, resolution that she wrote. And forgive me if I get the year wrong. It was in the late 60s. I want to say 68. The Knoll resolution was uh, created by herself and some other board members. And it was to end segregation in schools and to, you know, have a plan. What was the plan to end segregation in schools? Not just say, You know, it's kind of like what people do with EDI now. It's like, oh, we have this beautiful EDI statement or this beautiful Black Lives Matter statement that sits on our website, but we have no plan on how to institute any of these changes. And so it was a it was a demand, a public demand to say this has to end. You know, um, there was voluntary busing and Mrs. Knoll and other um, school board members they wanted to do more than just voluntary. It had to be a mandate. It had to be a mandate to say, no, we need to integrate our schools. And she did so many other things um, it, within the resolutions, because it was several of them. They even discussed like how the school books only focused on the achievements of white folks. There were no achievements of Latinos, in, in Colorado, right? You know, the, the state that's got a Spanish name. Um, there was no achievements of indigenous folks who own this land first and still own it in, in my eyes. Uh, we just reside on the land. And then other ethnic identities and black folks were just never recognized. So she put in motion several um, plans and resolutions to change all that. And to say it was a black woman who realized the schools are failing my children. If they're failing my children, then they're failing my neighbor's children. Then they're failing the community's children. And this is not, it's not a one-sided thing. I think that when we have these richer, you know, cultural awarenesses of one another, we become so much better. We're we're such better people. And I think she was a visionary in seeing that that was what was being lost with segregation. And then it was more than just segregation. It was lack, lack of resources, lack Mm -hmm. of, you know, money. So lack of books. So that's who Rachel B. Noel was. She was amazing. She was doing this diversity, equity, inclusion work we're talking about in 2021. She was doing this in the late 60s in Denver. Yes, exactly. So there was obviously um, the busing situation was not something favored by a lot of folks, white folks in particular. Um, Can you talk about the tension during that time and the pushback? So I will tell you that from our research, there were some black families also who were not 
happy. Really? Um, and from what we found out, it was more of a safety thing. Mm. It was p- parental fear that my child goes to school here in this neighborhood. If they get sick, I can walk mm. to the school and pick them up. My child is in the same neighborhood that I work. Um, thank you, redlining, right? Because yeah. when you have redlining pushing black and brown and immigrant folks into a certain area and that area is being seen as inferior, but then people make community there. They right. make homes there. And and they live with a certain sense of safety. And there were some parents who were like, you're going to take my child. And this was in the era of, you know, watching young Ruby Bridges walk to school and have to be escorted by, you know, federal marshals. Watching, um, you know, grown men, women, and children spit on and, and curse at kids who were just trying to go to school in other cities and states. So that, that I think, built the fear in the black community that some harm would come to their child and they would be an hour away, yeah, possibly without transportation to get on the other side of town. Um, and then, you know, what would happen in classrooms? Mm-hmm. You know, what would be going on there? Three generations are represented in this show, a grandma, a son, and a granddaughter. Can you talk about how each of their struggles within the school system kind of look different? So our grandmother, Candace Mason, who is called Big Mama, and that's a call back to my family, because what we call my grandmother, um, tells a story about like how before integration, things really weren't that bad. The community took care of one another. Um, we we did a lot of research on what was going on in Five Points, the cab companies, the 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 successful businesses that were in that area, homes that were you know owned by black and brown and immigrant folks. Yeah. So, um, so she tells that story, and she is trying to get her son who's kind of busy, he's a sandwich generation, he's taking care of his mother who's ailing, Mm. and then taking care of a teen daughter, and he's a single parent, in the middle of COVID, and he's trying to run a business, and he lived through integration, and through the telling of the story, he kind of relived some of the things he missed out on, because... Some things that busing did take away was like extracurricular activities for kids. They had to be on a bus and sometimes riding an hour, hour and a half back home through rush hour traffic. So there was no basketball or drama club or speech and debate, swimming, all all of the um, extracurricular um, classes were kind of lost to them. And, And he kind of talks about what his dreams were and what they had to become because, you know, it was also the eye that was kept on young black men, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, there were stories that were told that how young black men, of course, just like we lived in 2020, 2021, from then till now, um, are just seen as a threat, even when they're just being young, beautiful people who are enjoying their lives. And it's the beginning of the school to prison pipeline. It's the beginning of cops in schools. Yeah. You know, 
So yeah, that's that has been told through the son Kimani's eyes. And Kimani is my brother's name, so there's a callback again to mm. my family. And then finally, um, we have Amari. She is the granddaughter who is in the midst of this COVID mess. And and I'm an educator also in Aurora Public Schools. So many of her stories came from things I had heard from either my students or on the news about kids not having access to Wi-Fi. Yeah. Um, before COVID was a thing, <laughs> it is a thing, it's a big thing. You know, I remember my fellow uh, co-worker who was uh, the tech te- technology teacher, like scrambling to get computers from classrooms on carts, you know, sharing of computers. And then suddenly we step into COVID and we have one-to-one computers that are available for students. Students can take a computer home. They can get technology. But then they get home and they don't have access to Wi-Fi. So there is another, you know, generation who's lost out on education. So Amari tells that story. So, yeah, I mean, it's like, Although all these things are slightly different, they're still the same. Yeah. They're just you know. a different struggle and a different time, but they really mirror each other in certain ways. Yes. So this this shows part of a larger series called Sojourner's Project. Um, can you can you tease us with any future Sojourner's Project's ideas or things you're possibly working on? You're so nosy. I like that about you. <laughs> It's my job to be nosy. (laughs) It's like, ooh, I want more info. Um, I am very interested in telling the story of black and brown bodies moving throughout this world with or without their consent and the agency to tell their own stories. So Sojourners could be the story of the Great Migration of folks, Mm. like from the South to the North and the West. Or we could tell the story of, you know, a little girl who wanted to be an actor and lived in the 1940s and 50s in Denver and saw the greats come to the Rossonian and just have our eyes wide open of what singing and theater and then find, you know, the Ulipians Theater Company. We could tell those historic stories that are asleep. Or we could tell the story of a queer brown kid whose very conservative family has put them out mm. to the streets yeah. and they're couch surfing friends. That's a sojourner. That is someone who's living temporarily in a place. And, and we could tell those stories through this project. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you, Bree. So I, I hope that, you know, your listeners come out and join us. It is family friendly. We've got puppets. Yeah. We've got a big old yellow school bus. It's going to be amazing. I I really am. I'm excited and happy. Well, we'll include links in our show notes where people can find out information and get tickets and such. 
And here's what else is happening in Denver today. While rents in the Denver metro area may have fallen slightly in 2020 due to the pandemic, they are climbing once again, up more than 14% since August of last year. This means the average price of a one-bedroom is more than $1,400 a month, and two bedrooms are averaging more than $1,700. Okay, so I'm really mad about this next one. The city of Denver will be shutting down Civic Center Park for at least two months, citing violent incidents and unsanitary conditions. According to CBS4, during this closure, more surveillance cameras will be installed. Because that's what we need to do to deal with our housing crisis. Install more surveillance cameras. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell a friend about us, rate the show wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye-bye. In an attempt to desegregate... Hold on. Okay. <clears throat>